So I want to say, share some words about nature practice. Most of it pretty self-evident given today's performance, today's experience. Just hearing from the report back late afternoon before dinner and hearing the various qualities that you were experiencing or touching into, to me, feels self-evident of the efficacy and the power of this practice. For those of you who've done a lot of retreats, often the first day is molasses. (laughs) Heavy, tired, thinking a lot, hindrances a lot. And I noticed the experience of the first day nature retreat quite different. More aliveness, more energy, more connection, more presence, more attunement. Not to say that it's not also a struggle at times with the mind and the body. When I first started leading my own nature retreats, it started in uh, the canyons in Arizona, Navajo country, and uh, my Vipassana teaching colleagues would sort of slightly look down their nose and go, oh, you've been on one of those nature retreats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not the real Dharma <laughs> that happens inside four walls and a roof. Right? That's where the real Dharma happens. And I was kind of a little negatively influenced by that perspective for a while. I felt a little, not sheepish, but a little quiet about what I was doing and It's a little sort of not quite in the slipstream of the training that I experienced. And and at some point I realized, wait a minute, the Buddha meditated in the forest. Attained awakening in the forest under some trees. Lived in the forest, taught in the forest, died in the forest. His monks and nuns practiced in the forest. After he gave a teaching, he would say, there are the trees and there are the roots of trees. Go practice there lest you regret it later. There are the trees and there are the roots of trees. Go practice there. Find a tree, get some kusa grass, which is what he used to sit on and uh, as, a, as a cushion, and sit with the trees. Sit in the forest Study your mind, study the human condition, and wake up. And I imagine he might still say the same now, even though we've got nice buildings and air-conditioned Dharma halls. There's something lost when we go inside. There's a place for our buildings and temples and whatnot. And then if we look at the wealth of the Buddhist tradition and various other wisdom traditions, contemplative traditions, we see this this movement into and drawing on wisdom 
and the sacredness of the earth. From the Thai forest tradition where I definitely draw a lot of my inspiration from to the yogis in the Himalayas, in the Hindu tradition, in the Kashmiri Shaivism tradition, and the various Tibetan traditions, meditating in caves, and mountains, in the forest, in the deserts. You know, where are the, you know, when, you, when I travel in Southeast Asia, so many of the amazing monasteries I've been to, they're not in the city. <laughs> The Buddha said, you know, get away from this dusty, noisy town. Go to the forest. And so that's why so many temples and monasteries in Japan, China, Southeast Asia, these beautiful places like this. There's something profound about nature as a teacher that surprisingly doesn't get a lot of overt mention in the tradition. I mean, if you read the Buddhist text, there's plenty of references. Very clear the Buddha was a, you know, lived and studied the natural world. A lot of, lot of nature net metaphors, similes, analogies. And you find it a lot in Buddhist poetry, the influence of the natural world for sure. And throughout literature, the poetic tradition, Western philosophical traditions. You know, a lot of the great figures in Buddhist history you know, took their inspiration from the natural world. Milarepa, sitting in caves in Himalaya, Shabkar, great Dzogchen master, amazing nature, mystic poet, Achan Man, Achan Cha, very much part of the insight meditation lineage, practiced in the forest. Achan Man would send his monks and nuns to practice in forests where there were tigers, just to work on a little equanimity. <laughs> he didn't lose one monk, so something was going on. And even you know, in the, the, the Buddha's uh, practice and journey of awakening when he'd been an ascetic for so many years and realized that path was not going to free his mind except just decimate his body. He had a memory of sitting under the rose apple tree when he was a young boy or young man, watching his father ceremoniously plow the first crops of the year and sitting under the rose apple tree in this very serene rural setting and he he slipped his mind was naturally poised balanced and connected aware and he realized that quality of presence of gathered collected mind was the was the doorway to uh, understanding and awakening and I can't help thinking that that presence, that balance of mind was partly supported by being out sitting under a rose apple tree. Right? He wasn't sitting in the town square. That we're deeply impacted by 
the non-human world. So I want to speak tonight and another night about some of the things that we can, uh, how nature practice really supports both our well-being and our journey and our awakening and insight. So if you reflect on your time today, I imagine for many, if not all of you, that you are noticing how the natural world naturally calls forth attention. It allures awareness. It allures our interest. The beauty, the sounds, the light, the diversity, the complexity, the mystery. It captures our attention. We don't have to, just like in that moment when we were not paying attention, it's not hard to be present. And it actually invites our curiosity. These subalpine meadows with their flowers and grasses. We want to pay attention. We want to be awake. We want to be here. And so it makes the cultivation and the the abiding in awareness much easier because there's a a lure for our presence. (coughs) So just right now as you're sitting, right, outside, skies, dusk, Notice how the, your being is called to attention. Receptors on your skin and the, the sounds, the light, the ambience, the quality of energy. It's, I don't think I'm the only one that's allured by this. <laughs> The last few places I've done retreats, there's been birds' nests all around. There's, we've got a wren nest outside our cottage up there. Um, the last, oh, yesterday, last retreat, there was bluebird nests, and you know, and the all the babies are sitting in their nests, and the mama and the papa is coming to feed them, and it's just this delight of this joy. Why would I not want to be present for that? I remember I used to lead these kayaking meditation retreats in Alaska, which were very profound. And um, I remember one distinct morning, it was a kind of gray, misty morning as it often is up there, and we were doing group meditation. There's a long line of us walking along this pebbly beach in the inside passage. And we're just walking. It was early in the morning. People looked a little tired. It was early in the retreat. 
and then this humpback whale surfaced really close to this shore, like 40, 50 feet from the shore, and blew. And everybody turned in unison and just took in this majestic being teaching us about breathing, <laughs> teaching us about the outbreath. <laughs> and it's just beautiful to see how allured attention is, and just captured. And then the awe that arises from that. But we can have this in any moment here. We were walking down for this talk and six deer, four, three or four bucks and two females just standing still. Maybe they walked, did they walk past here earlier? Mm -hmm. They walk up there. Yeah. Talk about presence. Talk about mindfulness. Animals, particularly deer for me, such great embodiments of some of the principles of this practice. Alertness, relaxed, responsive. They have to be relaxed and yet they have to be vigilant. Body relaxed, alert mind, and responsive. Like the, the smallest sound, and their whole being springs into action. Right? That allures our attention. And when we're outside, <clears throat> we naturally uh, it naturally draws forth qualities that are really helpful for practice, for meditation, like interest. Energy follows our interest. No interest, no energy, we're asleep. Receptivity. There's a lot of receptivity happens, especially in listening. There's a lot of listening happens outside requires a settledness and a receptive quality of attention. Requires an intimacy, calls forth an intimate <coughs> awareness, the specificity. It's not just, oh, it's a nice meadow. Oh, no, it's rich with life and diverse flowers and grasses and insects, colors and calls forth an important quality of beginner's mind. Maybe some of you live in this landscape or very familiar with it. I'm very familiar with this land now after 26 years of coming here. But this quality of beginner's mind invites us to really be keen with our attention. It's not just an aspen tree, it's this aspen tree. It's this silvery iridescent bark and deer and elk markings and shimmering leaves and you know, 
it's very easy, particularly if you're trained um, as a biologist or you know you're familiar with the landscape. Very easy to think we know something because we know its name, its Latin name, its you know I don't even know the words. <laughs> um, you know how to classify it. And that's one way of understanding a landscape. And then we let go of the label and come to an intimacy, a beginner's mind. Yes, we might know, we might have studied aspen trees in, in college, but what is this aspen? Beyond my concepts and notions and ideas. I remember when I was writing my Awake in the Wild book and I wrote it mostly on my deck in a house I was living out in the country. And there was a beautiful old oak tree that was growing through three floors of decks, two floors of decks. And I'd sit right by the oak tree every day. And every day it was a different oak tree. And I, it would be my, like my little test to myself to see if it was just like, oh, there's the oak tree. I know the oak tree. I saw it yesterday. What's the big deal? I saw it the day before yesterday. No, but this moment, this tree, this pulsing, vibrating, color, light, texture, living, breathing being, that requires beginner's mind. It's a great poem from Mary Oliver. Uh, I, forget, I think it's called In Blackwater Woods, and she says... The tossed waters of the pond have settled after a night of rain. I dip in my cupped hands and drink a little while. It tastes like stone, like leaves, like fire. I feel it falling deep into my body, waking the bones. And I hear them whispering in, inside, saying, Oh, what was that beautiful thing that just happened? What was that beautiful thing that just happened? She drank some water. And it tasted like stone, like leaves, like fire. Right? What does this water taste like? Right? It's from the spring here. It tastes like my metal bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite as romantic. <laughs> but that to have that alive presence, right? To be that in awe of something as simple and as ordinary as drinking from a pond, to be that in awe. Beautiful. And so I'm sure you'll have many, many moments where you're just sitting quietly, maybe on the porch here or outside your yurt or tent and you're looking at the clouds as if you've never seen a cloud before and you're wondering what is this mysterious shape-shifting luminous thing that someone once told me it was a cloud what does that word have anything to do with that amazing magical mystical reality of light 
moisture and shape and form and color and density and So when we bring this quality of contemplative presence to our experience outdoors, we can't help be touched, be moved in all kinds of different ways. As I'm sure many of you, all of you were today in some ways as you were pointing to in some of the the things that you were sharing before dinner. remember a while ago there used to be a lot of bumper stickers that especially in the Bay Area that would say if you're not angry you're not paying attention or if you're not enraged you're not paying attention and I always wanted to have one if you're not in awe mystery and wonder you're not paying attention how could you not feel awe and rapture and mystery like this meadow like just the amazing intelligence and complexity and life of this meadow with its grasses and its plant life. Seemingly happening by itself. read something. I was going to read this later, but it seems to be uh, well, I don't have it, so I won't read it. (laughs) Or we can just experience the mystery that this writer was pointing to. (laughs) It's a piece by Annie Dillard called The Trees with the Lights in It. And it's about having this profound experience of seeing a tree that wasn't just a tree, it was luminous, it was pulsing, it was vibrant, it was awake. And we can have that with a leaf, with a rock, with a stone, with a snake that was lying on my porch when I was thinking about this talk today and resting in its quiet beauty and on this hot stone. It's a poem from Bokanon. Life is a garden, not a road. Life is a garden, not a road. We enter and exit through the same gate, wondering where we go matters less than what we notice. Wondering where we go matters less than what we notice. So the invitation here is to notice, to wake up. So I want to speak to some of the other qualities that can be evoked outdoors, which tremendous support for our well-being, for our practice, for our understanding, for the 
awakening of our heart. And I think one of the most immediate things that we notice experientially is our nervous system, our vagal nerve, our agitated, restless, sort of familiar way of being starts to exhale. Anybody notice that? Start to release, relax a little, calm down, soothe, settle, feel a little more at ease. No? Yes? Some? No? I mean, 30 hours ago, you were driving, you were driving here from wherever you were coming from, right? Think about what state of mind you were in there, state of body that you were in just 30 hours ago, right? Getting off the plane and finishing off texts and emails and phone calls and right? and then today, 24 hours of being in the wilderness and ah, like a deep exhale. And our nervous systems are hungry for this, this depth of release and uh, the times that we live right, very high strung high fast paced uh, over uh, stimulated brain nervous system right, sleep disorders one of the Fastest growing disorders, anxiety disorders, also epidemic levels, especially with our youth, partly related to technology. So just imagine how it'd be if we suddenly say, okay, you've got an hour to do some email now. whole nervous system would suddenly, right, so anxiety, revving up, mental agitation. It's right, such a gift to just be here and, and soften and release. It's a beautiful poem from Wendell Berry, and I'm sure you know, um, called The Peace of Wild Things, I think it's called, and he presents this juxtaposition really beautifully. He says, I forget the first line. line That's the second line. I think it's the second line because I think there's a lead-in line. Anyhow, I start with that line. Thank you. When I wake up in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives might become, When I wake up in the night, at least sound and fear of what my life and my children's lives may become, I go outside and lie down where the wood drake rests his quiet beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of wild things. I already said that line. <laughs> I come into the presence of day-blind stars waiting with their light and for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. 
Right? So what we're doing here, we're coming into the presence of wild things, rocks, trees, land, earth, grasses, forest, mountains, clouds, who, do not, who aren't busy taxing their mind or their whatever with worries about the future. They're just resting in being, being stones, being mountains, being trees, being rivers, being animals, and being deeply interconnected that rubs off on our mind, heart, nervous system. It's a very welcome and necessary salve to that restlessness we tend to live in and don't even notice till we come on retreat and then we see how revved up we are and how long it takes to actually slow down and get in our bodies and touch the earth and actually feel it under our feet. I know this sometimes when I've gone on retreat and I feel like I'm slightly in a daze for a few days. I'm not quite here. Like I'm here, but I'm not really dropped in. It just takes a while to sort of rev down. And what else are we impacted by? We can be impacted by the stillness. The first line from the prayer that I read this morning, the Ute prayer, Earth, teach me stillness as grasses are stilled with light. Like right now, the stillness of the air, the stillness of evening, stillness of the trees and the breeze. It washes over us. And we can, uh, by attuning to that, receive more of its influence attuning to the stillness, like right now, just the simple recognition, oh, stillness is like this. An interesting thing about awareness, when we notice something, it usually allows it to flower. When we attune to stillness, oh, right, stillness. When we tune to peace, it usually allows it to grow a little. So there's a really important teaching from the Buddha about inclining the mind. He said, uh, whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind and the heart. Neuroscience, you know, he's kind of predating neuroscience 2,600 years. What wise wise together, wise together, what we give attention to becomes the inclination of our mind, habit, thoughts, reality perceptions, experience. So to be mindful of what you're inclining to. Can you incline towards stillness? Can you incline towards peace? Can you incline towards beauty? Like right now, just take a moment and incline your attention to anything that's beautiful in this landscape. Just take a moment just to do that. Just let your eyes, ears, skin, body, just take something in. And then savor it. 
Rick Hansen, psychologist, Buddhist teacher, talks about savoring. It takes at least 20 seconds to actually register, really let something saturate. So notice whatever it is, just taking some breaths and savoring it. And then notice as you incline towards beauty, how that touches you, your heart, your mind, energy. Right? In our lives, what are we inclining to? We're inclining, inclining to this, this, prefrontal cortex, and this in the midline, the uh, uh, DFM, thank you, default mode network. I really appreciate getting help with the talk tonight. This is good. <laughs> As the brain and the memory starts to fade, it's good. Uh, yeah, we incline towards rumination about self, past and future, worry and threat. And that creates agitation and fear, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may become. I go and lie down, I incline my mind to the naturalness, the peace of wild things. Oh. And for a time I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. That's always available. We can always notice what's happening. We can ask ourselves, is this inclination skillful or not, healthy or not, supportive of my well-being or not? And if not, can we notice that and incline the attention somewhere else? What else is here about, aside from the worry about my future? or my regretting decisions in the past. Oh, there's teeming life happening right here called birdsong, called cloudscape, called fragrant inhale. So another profound thing that happens when we step outdoors from whatever building we're in, we enter into a bigger space. You step outside of your casita, or the lodge, or your office, or your home, or your car, or whatever. And what do we see? The sky, space, like here, right? step outside, what's here? Vastness, space. And that space gives a sense of perspective. We step outside, that's why it's so important. The average American spends at least 90% of their time indoors. I actually think it's way higher than that because that would mean 10% of your day is outside and I don't think most people do that. Maybe it's more like 95% of our time indoors. What happens, we, that the, the confines of the wall, we feel that. We step outside, we go for a walk, or even just walking down our street, walking in a park, walking anywhere outside, we get a sense of space. There's a whole lot of life happening. I remember when I was writing my last book and I was in this house, uh, 
and um, I'd get sort of cabin, it was like a cabin, I'd get cabin fever, and I'd just, and my mailbox was about a three-minute walk up the street, and I'd do that five, ten-minute walk, and as soon as I'd step outside, it'd be like, oh, it's spring, I'd forgotten it's spring, and it's foggy, and it's midday, and there's a whole lot of life happening, and I'd step outside of the prison of my own little bubble. I get space, I get perspective, I get vantage point. So think for yourselves what arises for you outdoors. Maybe it's a deep touching into calm. You know, another quality that's quite elusive, like peace, because of the restlessness. That line from John O'Donohue, draw alongside the silence of stone until its calmness can claim you. Right? What would it be to let yourself be claimed by calm, by stillness, by peace, allowing it to impact you. And I'm looking at this beautiful mature aspen tree here and the, and the trunk exudes to me just this still, quiet presence. And when I really listen and receive that, I feel it like down the trunk of my own body not separate. This is from Achan Chah, who um, is a great Thai forest meditation master and spent a lot of his years wandering the forests of northern Thailand. He says, try to be mindful and take, let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any, circum, any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in this world you will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So we can touch into that kind of stillness, presence. You know, so much of Buddhist teaching, especially the early teachings, was really about how to cultivate and train the mind, how to develop samadhi, this balanced, collected, unified, quiet, presenceful mind, mind and heart, in order to see clearly. Right? If we're restless and busy and agitated and distracted and hard to see clearly, right? 
mindfulness, the purpose of mindfulness is to illuminate, to clarify. But without that stability, that ground of samadhi, of collectedness, ease, well-being, whatever we see is hard to really let it deepen. So nature is a beautiful support for samadhi. As I mentioned earlier, Achan Buddhadasa, who was a great, also great scholar and uh, forest monk, he got fed up with the Thai bureaucracy, the, the Buddhist establishment, which are full of nitpicking and usual religious doctrinal nonsense. And he went to the forest uh, and he created this beautiful forest monastery that I practiced at called Wat Swan Muk, which means Garden of Liberation. And when you'd go and study with him, as my friend Rodney Smith did, um, and he asked to study with him, Buddha Dasa said, no, no, I'm not, gonna, I'm not teaching anybody here. And Rodney got really disappointed and he left. And the monk had seen this happen before. And he, so he went after Rodney and said, look, come back and ask, tell the Achan, the teacher, that you're here to learn from the forest. So he goes back and he says, can I study here? I want to learn from the forest. And Achan Buddha Dasa lit up and said, yes, the forest is the teacher here. Go, go find a cabin in the woods. There's lots of cooties in the woods. And he said, sit and walk and let nature do the rest. Let nature allow you to find your true nature and discover your true nature. So he used that term natural samadhi as we come outside. That quality of effortless presence develops quite easily. So we have a depth of attention, a depth of perception, depth of knowing. And that will deepen over the days. So and as I mentioned yesterday, or I think it was last night, um, the, one of the beautiful things about this practice outdoors is it allows the heart to really gladden and brighten and I think this again this is particularly important in the times that we live in Um, most people I work with individually retreats arrive and their lives are a lot of stress anybody stressed here in their lives is that a silly question (laughs) it's just part of the norm of one's life and uh, when we're stressed, it taxes the body, the nervous system, our mind. Um, and I often work with people and they're so busy and so struggling just to pay the bills that there's no time for simple pleasure, for joy. And uh, or, we, or our attention is so oriented towards the overwhelmingly depressing data about the climate crisis that we're gripped in this fight-flight fear depression and so for those and many other reasons it's essential that we also nourish ourselves that we nourish our hearts that we also see what's beautiful in this world what's alive you know the climate and the uh, 
You know, there's not a, a place in the world that's not having some kind of ecological crisis. And yet, and yet, it is summer in the mountains and it's exquisite. And yes, we can look for the signs in the stressed trees and various other uh, features that are saying yes, and there's also trouble here. And yet, it's beautiful. And yet, it opens our heart. And yet, we feel delight and rapture at the morning bird song, or at the cloudscape, or the fish in the pond, or the ducks floating they were as they were this afternoon. So I really want to invite you to let yourself drink in the beauty and the joy and the delight and the rapture. Not to force that to happen, because you can't force it to happen. But if you incline your attention, it will most likely arise and nourish yourselves and saturate it. You know, for the Buddha, the, 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 the path to joy was through jhana practice, which is a whole lot more work than going for a walk at Vaisitos. <laughs> But he said, you know, in the first and second jhana, let your, mind, let your body be pervaded and saturated by joy and pleasure born of concentration. Right? The Buddha was not uh, averse to joy and pleasure. Right? Saw the value of that. So let yourself savor it. It's a beautiful line, for, a beautiful poem from Mary Oliver, one of my favorites, called Mindful, funnily enough. Um, uh, this poem goes um, every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light it is what I was born for to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world with joy and acclamation nor am I talking about the exceptional, but of the ordinary, the common, the drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how could you help but grow wise with but teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, and the prayers that are made out of grasses. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight. Right? That probably happens many, many, many times a day. Right? You're walking here and something touches you. Maybe it doesn't kill you with delight, but certainly lifts you with delight. To joy, to rapture, to awe. So please let that in. Tune. Let it nourish, nurture you. Gladden your heart. I was just sitting with this monk, Analio, who's a wonderful teacher, translator, a very preeminent translator of um, Buddhist texts, especially the Satipatthana, uh, mindfulness teachings. And he was emphasizing a lot the importance of pleasure in practice. You know, we're, we're pleasure-seeking beings. When we can find the pleasure in practice, what does it do? It engages our attention. We suddenly pay, get really mindful because it's pleasurable. Right? We have to watch the attachment to it, but to, to allow that delight to, to, to be a, a support for presence.
All right, so maybe that's enough words for today. Um, as I mentioned up the hill, there's, you know, there's a whole other, well, there's many, many, many facets, and we'll point to some of the dimensionalities of nature practice. There's also the hard stuff, you know, the bugs and the cold and the discomfort and the fear, and, um, and I'll talk about that. Uh, another night, I remember when I first came here from England. So I came here in 93 and I spent the summer up here cooking. I cooked here for the first six or seven years. I wrote their first cookbook called The Very Wonderful, Very Vegetarian Viacitos Cookbook. <laughs> Which is sadly not for sale anymore, but you, maybe I can get, give you a collector's item. <laughs> and... Um, Anyhow, so I'd spend long summers up here, and there wasn't that many retreats back then, so there's long breaks in between. And I was camping, because there wasn't any of these casitas then. And um, uh, I was up here for a couple of weeks once between retreats. And, and I was coming from England, and in England, it's not that wild, as I mentioned. There's no bear, there's no coyote, there's no cougar, there's no black bear and a whole bunch of other things, lynx. Uh, we have, you know, like ladybugs <laughs> and, you know, hmm? bunnies, <laughs> really scary bunnies. <laughs> hedgehogs. Hedgehogs, right, love the hedgehogs. Badgers. So I was just completely unused to being in the wild and I got really mindful. I learned how to walk really quietly, stealthily through the woods. And I got really present at night in the least sound. <laughs> I actually ended up moving my bed outside of my tent because I was so afraid what was outside my tent. <laughs> I said, well, just go outside. And then it was not a problem. It was just... Oh, stars and forest anyhow so let's just sit quietly for a few moments just let the words sort of settle thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharma seed dot org slash donate.